Early every fall, Toronto's Harbourfront Centre hosts the Toronto International Festival of Authors. And for the past few years, we at Kobo have participated by joining amazing authors on stage to do what we do on this show, but for a live audience. This year, I, Nathan Maharaj, Kobo in Conversation producer and occasional host, I got to speak with the Giller Prize winning novelist Sean Michaels about his new book, Do You Remember Being Born? It's a really smart, funny novel about technology and art and where we draw the line between an artist and their tools. Uh, the tool in this case is an AI trained to write poetry, and the artist is a Marianne Moore-like poet who could really use the money being offered for this unusual assignment. Anyway, let's head over now to the Lakeside Terrace uh, at Harborfront Centre for a session called Chat, GPT, GPT and, and verse. verse. It is my delight to introduce you to the author joining us tonight. We actually have a choice in how I make this introduction. I wrote one, but I also had ChatGPT write one. Who wants to hear the one I wrote? Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's really good. Okay, so I guess the rest of you want to hear the one chat GPT wrote? Is that fair? Okay, all right, all right. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, meet Sean Michaels. Born in Toronto, he went from music writer to literary sensation with his 2014 debut, Us Conductors, winning the Scotiabank Giller Prize. His writing fuses history, music, and fiction into the mesmerizing tales featuring lyrical prose and profound storytelling. So let, let's, let's applaud Sean. He has joined us. He's just been introduced Hi. by a computer, okay? Welcome, Sean. Hi, it's nice to be here. <laughs> uh, I, in ChatGPT's defense, I don't think it's ever attended an actual literary festival, and this took several iterations where I told it I needed, it's, I needed, I need to read it aloud. It's going to be can on stage. Can you be a bit more enthusiastic? Can I get a little yeah. more enthusiasm? Yeah. Uh, can you drop the emojis because I have to read this out loud? Um, I didn't mention uh, that your actual place of birth is not Toronto. That's true. It's not. No. <laughs> so. In the epigraph at the very beginning, mm -hmm. we, we have a letter from the American poet, Marianne Moore, uh, addressed to a Mr. Young of the Ford Motor Company, uh, in which she proposes several names that they might want to use for a car. And those names include, and these are just my favorites, this is not exhaustive, Mongoose Civic, Dearborn Diamante, Pastelogram. Uh, and there are others, and they're, they're no less fun to say, but these are these were my favorites. Um, <laughs> Can you tell us more about that letter and maybe give us a sense of the world of Marianne Moore? Because I believe this letter was, was somewhere in the genesis of this novel. Yeah, it very much was. I was actually, I've been haunting, I've been wandering around this building for the past 24 hours and having like a weird trippy deja vu from haunting and wandering around this building in 2019 when I was here last. And my record, like, I'm like, was it the same type time of year? Because I really, like, my recollection of being here was, like, it was apocalyptic and, like, <laughs> cold and snowy and horrible. And, like, walking along the road here just felt like I was, and I was like, oh, it must have been during COVID. No, it wasn't. It was before. It was 2000. Anyway, I have no idea. But I was here. And in just around the corner in one of the other rooms here, because I had one of those deja vu moments, I saw uh, Andre Alexis speak and he was reading from his latest book and I remember I had 
just put out a new book. My second book, The Wagers, came out in the fall of 2019. I was here promoting it. But that meant I was between book. I hadn't, didn't have a new project yet. And I had been kind of working on trying to do things for months. And I remember arriving here and kind of being, feeling the, the weird kind of grinding melancholy that some artists, certainly I feel when I don't have a thing to work on. I mean, novels mm. take such a long time, so you really get used to having a like a thing you're kind of chipping away at, and then there's a certain kind of loss and em empty nest kind of thing when the book finally comes out like this has just come out. I'm like, ah! Um, <laughs> but I remember like kind of, maybe that's why it felt so apocalyptic. I remember kind of like throwing myself through this building, feeling all ground up, and not knowing what my next book should be, and looking for kind of guidance and inspiration and not really finding a thing that was a lantern. And I remember seeing Andre Alexis, who's a wonderful writer, but also like a kind of cerebral guy. And he gave this talk about what he was working on, what he, other books he had written and what his future, he always had like, he always has like five books in his pocket. And I remember, I think I wrote it down in my, a notebook. I remember this like pretty banal thought, but while I was watching him, which was like, you can write about, you can write about anything, but also like you can write any kind of book. Like it's kind of the, the I, I find there's something weird about a festival like this where we all, it's this parade of kind of identical events with like writer and other person or a couple <laughs> of writers and other person. You go to the bookstore and there's a bunch of identical objects with slightly different colored fronts, but they're the same. But inside each one is like this, like one is a weird toadstool, one is a weird, one is a giant ogre, one is a unicorn, one is a sailboat. Like, Summer just smells. Someone just smells, exactly. Like a book can be so many different things, particularly like a work of fiction. There's so many different ways to do it. And I, there was something liberating about it. I could do, like stop worrying about like what story you're gonna tell. Like you can do whatever the, the fuck you want. And of course it didn't help. I wasn't then like, and what I will do was, I didn't know <laughs> what it would be. But not long thereafter, I'd already been thinking a bit about AI. I'd been playing with some AI stuff on the internet since that spring. But then I got home to Montreal, and to get to your question, I read an article in The New Yorker that was a review of a biography of Marianne Moore. And Marianne Moore is like this funny, very well-known, great 20th century poet whose work I was only superficially knowledgeable of. But it told some of the story of her life. And it was the life of a great poet who lived this strangely small life, living in the same apartment her whole life in Manhattan, sleeping in the same bedroom, sharing a bedroom, and in fact sharing a bed with her mother, never married, never had children, maybe never, no long-term relationships. She wore a cape and a tricorn hat, and in her 50s and 60s became very famous, like famous in a way that poets almost never get to be now. She would throw the first pitch at a Yankees game. She would go on The Tonight Show. She would write the liner notes for Muhammad, for Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay's first album. Like she was this public intellectual in this fantastic way later in life. And then there was also this curious incident with Ford, where in 1955, Ford wrote to this great, one of the great poets of, of that time and said, do uh, you want to help us name our new car? <laughs> and they weren't offering a check. It was really like, do you want to help? And instead of her like turning up her nose at this project, for, okay, understandably, truly understandably, she was like, sure. Because <laughs> it, like, it sounds like a fun 
thing, like a curious invitation to have industry, capitalism, be like, hey, would you like to come and play with our toys for a bit? And so for months, she sent them these incredible names, as you say, Utopian Turtle Top, Mongoose Civique, uh, the Ford Silver Sword, the Ford Fabergé, like it does go on and on and on. And they rejected them all and ultimately called it the Ford Edsel, and it was a flop. Um, <laughs> but I found there was something really interesting about this grand artist with all of her power still being like seeing the, the answering the invitation mm. of, a, of a corporation that, I mean, it's Ford. It's not like it's some, it's like it's Ford and still being tempted enough to kind of like lend her art, kind of sell out herself in that way. And I thought there was something actually very universal, universal in that impulse. And I thought I wanted to explore it a bit more. Mm -hmm. So that, that almost forces me to ask then, why not fictionalize um, that encounter then between, why not you know, fictionalize a Marianne Moore, um, fictionalize a, a Mr. Young, we'd love to know what happened to him. If, he, if this was his bright idea and they went with none of it, that's, that, that's a story. Why instead take a step aside and create a Marianne Moore-like character in, in, uh, in our contemporary time, rather than dealing with the, the height of post-war industry in America, instead talking about um, uh, you know, the height of information technology. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it was just, I, my first book is this kind of fictionalization of a historical event. I think I partly also learned like the, fl the, flaw, the flaws of that form, which is everyone's constantly just comparing it, or not everyone, but uh, it's a the segment Thurman of readers guys. that are it's just... The, it's the angry Thurman guys. The angry the Thurman guys yeah. are just comparing it against the reality and they're either disappointed or excited about the mismatch. But also I had done that and mm. each of my books really feels like a reaction to the other. I want to turn towards the thing I haven't, I don't know how to do yet. Mm. And so that was definitely a big piece, that kind of repetition. And then also the curiosity I felt about this weird encounter I had started, these weird encounters I had started to have with large language models, with early AI writing stuff on the internet. And I just saw, suddenly I saw, you know, this character, this real person, Marianne Moore. I was like, what would Marianne Moore have to say about, about this? Mm. And, and then I, but then I made a, a deliberate decision. I, I wasn't just gonna write a book about you know, Marianne, what if Marianne Moore lived in the future? I'd create my own character, and there's a lot of big differences between, you know, Marianne in my book is tall. <laughs> Marianne Moore is very short. Uh, I just got a note from the French translator who was like, uh, I think we are, I have, here's the translation of the book. I'm going to change the name Marianne to Marianne, because Marianne in French is kind of unusual. And I'm thinking, no, 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 uh, no you can't make it just the same as Marianne, as in Marianne Moore, because then people will think, anyway, these are the kinds of, yeah, anyway, ramble. We, we pro she's probably Marie, did we, are we ending up, we have to, we we'll end up with Marie, yeah, yeah. Right. That's, that's a good idea. That's not bad, you, go. oh, you, you, you got a royalty coming you your way. <laughs> um, you started this book in 2019, as I understand it. This is well before the likes of GPT-4, which uh, is the large language model AI from the company OpenAI that I was alarmed to realize has only been out for six months. This is the biggest six-month-old baby ever. Um, uh, you actually were writing before um, GPT-4's predecessor. GPT-3 came out uh, in 2020. Um, one of many alarming things that happened that year. Um, can you, can, was everyone taking a second? Like, what else happened in 2020? What's wrong with this guy's life? Maybe we should, yeah. Um, we went through it together. Denial's, denial's not healthy, folks. Um, 
Can you describe what were the tools like when you were when you were beginning this book? Because I think we're so steeped now in in these generative uh, models that are able to produce prose, um, able to to do some really remarkable things. Was 2019? Was it just you playing like autofill games and text with friends? No, I mean, so there were GPT two. So the ChatGPT uses either GPT-4 or GPT-3.5. And then, as you say, in 2020, there was the predecessor GPT-3. We're going back from 4, 3.5, 3. In, in, 19, in 2019, GPT-2 existed, but it was only available to researchers and developers who would apply to access for access to OpenAI and get on a wait list and all this kind of thing. And so I applied and, and also through a researcher colleague kind of snuck my way. Oh no, that, that's not true. That's happened later. First, there's just a developer in Toronto. We're in Toronto. I've, already, I've been saying this for years. Uh, I need to remember his, anyway, it doesn't matter. He, except he might be here. That's why I'm like, what? But there's a website called Talk to Transformer that this developer here created. And it was just a web page with a text box where you could type in any text, and it would, he had access to GPT-2, so you could just hit submit, and then it would like add another 20 words to the end of continue your paragraph, just keep writing it. And it was crazy, and it was really good. Like, really good in a, in, it was also really bad, you know, it was frequently off and, and disappointing and frustrating and stupid and contradictory, but, but it had this uncanny ability to surprise you to surprise me with the way it would continue a thought or mimic a style. So you could paste in, I don't know, a few paragraphs I think you could, you could manage to fit in. And the more you give it, the more, of course, it knows how to mimic a particular stylistic voice. And I could see that already it was sort of nuts. And the thing that's interesting is we're now like four years later and the technology is much, much better and its ability to mimic style is much, much better. But most people don't know that because they've mostly just used ChatGPT. And OpenAI's product, ChatGPT, which is a free website, takes that like sentence completion software and then has like trained and made it specialize in, okay, I want you to just be a very helpful robot who answers questions in a banal, reliable, calm, bland way. That is your job. And if you do anything else, like right. hits you on. So it's actually kind of hard to get chat GPT to mimic prose voice. Hmm. But it is not hard for the technology underneath it to do that. And I think a lot of writers, one of the fears I have is I've read articles by some of my peers saying, don't worry about this stuff. It's unable to like truly, or like Nick Cave saying, it can't write song lyrics like mine. It's like, no. No, it I mean, 100% it can, can, not just like, <laughs> like, obviously there's a difference between a human and a machine, but its ability to do it is better than if you ask ChatGPT, write a book in the style of Shawn Michaels. Like, it's not good at that. But if you get into GPT-4, give it a page or 100 pages of your work and ask it to keep writing, my experience is that that is one of unsettling ability, not of, like, absolute... Um, incompetence. So as you began the book then, based on uh, your experience of GPT-2 and GPT-3, was it, was it frustrating or alarming or, um, I mean, books take a long time to write. Yeah. So to be writing about, um, about a technology that's, that's like it's still cooking, um, what was, how did you manage that? How did you sort of draw boundaries around what, what will be happening in your book? 
I mean, you can't. You just, I mean, I really just tried to write the book truly and faithfully. And I think I'm lucky in some ways that the, like, things start to get crazier and crazier, but things got really crazy about a year ago with ChatGPT and GPT-4, like November into January. And by that point, my book was done. Like, the book, I sold this book uh, summer 2022. So, like, I was still editing it, but it was long past. So I didn't have to feel like, ah! It's, what I started to feel, though, at that point, starting last summer, was, like, with, instead of being like, whoa, I'm really, like, I was onto something, I started to feel like, oh, I'm late. Like, what mm -hmm. happens by September 2023 when the book came out? I was worried, like, how many other writers will have published novels on this topic? And luckily, the answer is, like, close to zero. Um, but it became a kind of a worry and a dread. But I will say that, like, initially I really imagined the book. Charlotte in the book isn't just like a large language model. She is kind of, sort of, maybe slightly alive in a way that the things we have today, the chatbots we have today, aren't. Like, nobody really feels that they are. So it kind of, like, is hand-wavy about what that difference is, but it says, there's a conversation where someone says, like, this isn't just a large language model, this is something else. Mm. Um, However, initially I really imagined it would take place kind of five years or 10 years in the future. And for a while there was even like the front first page of the book would be like a few years from now. And then it, I changed the first page of the book would say like one year from now. And then by the time we were in copy edits, I'm like, let's cut that. Because <laughs> by the time it's published, it might be like last week. You know, it's historical <laughs> fiction. Yeah. So there's having an idea about writing a novel where a poet writes something in collaboration with a generative AI. And having that idea is not the same thing as writing the novel um, where a poet writes in collaboration with a generative AI. Poetry's hard. <laughs> um, were, like, were you just full of that Andre Alexis uh, inspired gumption? Like, do, there, you could have written, you could have written, um, instead of a Marianne Moorish character, you could have written an Alice Munroish character. And then you could have just stuck to prose. Yeah. Uh, you could have you could have done a Lester Bangs-ish yeah. uh, music critic. That would have. That, I think that's even easier. Why, why set that bar for yourself? Yeah, I mean, it was horrible to have to decide to write a book about a poet and about a poem. Like at first, I'm like, maybe I can get away without ever having any of the poetry in the book because I'm not a poet. And then I I quickly figured out I couldn't. Um, but it's kind of like. Poetry represents something so vivid. Like it represents something like material and real and like poetry is different than prose in these certain ways. But it's also such a vivid, it's a symbol, right? For everyone, even people who don't, maybe especially people who don't read poetry. And it feels like the most clear, one of the most clear tests of how we understand art and art making is what does it mean to have an expression that resembles a poem, but which has no bodily lived experience, perhaps has no real intentionality. Like, what does all that mean? And it's kind of like the starkest version of that, and so it became kind of necessary to follow that course. One of the, one of the, the really interesting things, I think, about um, writing poetry with generative, generative AI is... On one hand, you've got a technology that speaks based on uh, its understanding of patterns. Understanding is a is a yeah. tough word, but it's 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 a it's a predictive model based on frequency uh, and likelihoods. And 
that seems to run contrary to, I think, poetry. We expect this is where language is going to be used in novel ways. Um, and yet there's this like elegant tension in that, well, yes, it's going to be used in novel ways, but it still has to be comprehensible to, uh, to a human mind because a human mind is where that magic of poetry actually um, happens. So I come to the question of like, why not let a let a machine write some poetry? Because because the 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 magic is really is cognitive. Um, I don't know if you want to answer that or if you want to tell us also what your experience of actually letting the machine go ahead and and spout, spout some free verse turned out to be. Yeah, well, both things are interesting. I mean, the writing of this this was the first novel I've written that I didn't plan it ahead of time. I didn't heavily outline it. I kind of said, okay, I've got a premise. Marin is going to California, she has seven days there, she's writing a poem, she's doing it to get a check for her son. Her son is middle-aged, but wants to buy his first house. Housing, housing is not, <laughs> housing is what housing is in this year. She's a poet, albeit a famous poet, so she's desperate to prove that she is a good mother by providing, helping him with a down payment on a house, because she was, a bad, spoiler alert, she was a bad mother. <laughs> um, so I had this premise and it's like, go. And then uh, I didn't know where the book, like how do you solve, like does she succeed? <laughs> like should she, what does it say about art if she does write a poem with an AI? And then wait, what does it say about art if she cannot write a poem with an AI? Like I had no idea how to finish the book and had to figure out my answer to the questions I was posing. But I was really trying to be awake and alert to the questions that were coming up for me as I wrote this book. And I had this idea that my book, just like Marion is writing a, a poem with a computer, that my book could be infiltrated quietly, slowly by a, an AI in the same way. And so there's par parts of this book that were written with AI. And I kind of try to sneak up on the reader by gradually kind of suggesting this as they begin to wait. Wait, it's like, wait, is there someone else in here with me? Like, yeah. or is there somewhere else? So anyway, I had the, all these thoughts. But one of the things that honestly began to like worry or uh, worry me, worry in the sense that like when you worry away at some, like, you know, you worry, anyway, not the worry as in like, I had great apprehensions, but like I started to, to fit, fidget with a lot was if I write, um, I need to come up with a really succinct example. If I write, the sunlight was like, um, the sunlight was like an apology, okay? If I wrote that, wrote that sentence, we would all kind of nod and think about it. Or if it happens in a story, you're like, oh, that's interesting, that's a lovely image. What, how does that connect with the story that is being told? How is that profound and beautiful? Or, you know, cliche and hackneyed doesn't work with me, for me, whatever. But you kind of like, you're willing, the reader makes meaning and attaches like, oh, it's like an apology and this, oh yeah, it's sort of, anyway, you figure it out. If a random number generator, slot machine AI, just if you write in the sunlight was like a, and then it chooses a random noun from the English language and it plonked down apology, I as a reader might still, would still, you know, nod along in the same way like, ah, oh, yes, it's like an apology. And there's something weird that, you know, we can be fooled by AI, fooled by these AI models, which I, by which I mean like they can write something lovely that we mistake for lovely when it's actually like meaningless. But what worried me was that 
humans also can write lines that aren't really intensely felt, that they don't really know what that means, that you're just blabbing on. Certainly poets, where the form is even less, like you don't even have to tell a good yarn, you can just kind of like make weird word dreams appear in people's heads and you're like achieving one of the goals of a certain kind of poetry. Then basically all, like, all of writing is sort of this made up thing or can be this sort of made up thing. And it's not actually, um, there's not actually a, a clear difference there. I'm kind of a bullshit artist writing my fake, my lie, my fictional story about a fictional people having fictional problems um, and, and trying to make something that feels, what was it GBT said, like lyrical and... Uh, uh, Excuse me, we're consulting. Any, anyway, lyrical, lyrical and, prose and profound storytelling. Yeah, lyrical and profound, you know, but with my nonsense. And there's not anything necessarily that different about our, uh, an AI kind of randomly arriving at something that humans we are just great meaning makers, can read and stroke our chins and be moved by. And that disquieted me. That like, mm. made me uncomfortable. And then it was like, well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's ask those questions and have Marion herself wonder at those things and try to figure out her way through. Mm. I'm so glad that when I read this book, I basically, I, uh, the organizers asked me, would you like to interview Shawn Michaels at TIFA? And I was like, the wrestler? And they were like, no, the Giller Prize winner. And I was like, wow, that's a big one. Thanks, I'm really honored. That's a really nice thing for you to ask me to do. Um, he has a new book out. And they were like, we know that's how this works. So anyway, so I started reading uh, his book right away. I didn't even read the synopsis. I was just like, Shawn Michaels has a new book, open. So I had no idea, no synopsis, no interviews, no nothing. All that was gonna come after for me to prepare for this. And so I had the delightful experience of having no idea what was up. And maybe some of you are in this position too. So I, I had a suspicion, then I got to the end and, and there's an author's note and I'm like, oh, wow, cool trick, amazing, love that. Um, because there are these gray bits. Sean, can you tell us about the gray bits? Yeah, the gray and bits, so yeah. the gray, so gray bits meaning parts that appear in highlight and actually like the author's note, anyway, if you wanna like, I need to maybe put a note on my website really spelling out, because it's a bit, it's not all the gray bits, it's just many of the gray bits, it's a bit confusing, but there are passages that, I mean, yeah, all the, I mean, I don't know what to explain, but the parts of the book that were written with AI, and so I would come to a moment, and I'd be curious what the AI might do in this moment, or I would deliberately be like, this is a good moment to find out what a real life AI would put in here, and then I would say, okay, complete this sentence, or complete this paragraph, go, and I would see what it would write. And then in, I think, absolutely every case, I then had to say, no, try again, no, try again, no, try again, between you know, 10 and 10,000 times. Uh, it really did feel like writing fiction with a slot machine, where you're just like, let's try again, let's try again. Um, but trying to find moments where the AI either did something I really liked, did something that was like wrong in an interesting way, did something that was like plain, like I was also interested in places where it like maintained, where it did the very op obvious, you know, the, uh, her hair was as white as, it like had a very hard time saying anything other than snow. Like <laughs> it was like snow, 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 milk, snow, 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 like that's it. Um, and so yeah, playing with it in that way. But for instance, I was writing poetry, all of the poetry that the Charlotte character the AI character writes in the book is genuinely was the product of AI, but GPT can't write poetry. It, it can only write rhyming dog roll. It was kind of mis, 
misprogrammed by its, pro it's like a human problem, a human error, not a technology thing. But it was tr trained, fine-tuned in such a way that if you say poetry, you say free verse in the style of whoever you want to, and do not rhyme, and it'll be like, uh, you, you've got it. There once was a man from Panama who, you know, like, it just can't not rhyme. So I had to build or get a grant and find a developer to build a custom poetry bot, fine-tuned and trained in the ways I wanted it to be, to speak in a kind of Charlotte-like voice mm. that I imagined. But even then, it was like, because I, because I was making my own custom thing, it was particularly insane. Uh, and prone to like nonsense. And so you're really like, okay, try again, okay, try, okay, there's three words I like, now we need another line. How did you choose the poets to, uh, to include in that stew? I mean, it is like a stew. It's really by like, I started by saying, telling Katie who did the work, uh, uh, a scientist called Katie O'Neill, a computer scientist. I, I was like, okay, feed it Marianne Moore and the works of Marianne, complete works of Marianne Moore, some of her letters and so on. And then it came out, but it was, it was, it just, Marianne Moore is kind of old fashioned looking enough that I didn't have this contemporary voice I wanted, I didn't have a sense of humor that translated in the same way. And so then you just start adding really like a, da it's, like a it's like a dash of this, mm -hmm. a dash of that. And I did, I thought it would be a little bit, like I thought it would be funny, funny is probably the wrong word, but interesting to also keep things local I used the, I used, I edited down and, and highly distilled, but I used parts of, what were they? Two anthologies of Canadian contemporary poetry. Um, yeah, one from, edited by Jim John Stone and one by Rob Taylor, um, but of poets who are at this festival, some of them. Um, but yeah, doing a dab, because I want, I like that idea of like, it's, it's this great American New York poet and then also, you know, a bunch of my faves from Winnipeg and, <laughs> and uh, Halifax. Um, but waiting basically to see until, you can't be that, it's just like until it starts to speak in the voice that you, it's kind of like playing with a synthesizer or something, which I don't know how to do, but where you're trying to get it, like how do I get that sound to be like mm. the one in my head? Mm -hmm. Finally, okay, there it is, there stop. It is. Yeah, yeah. How did you, um, aside from Charlotte being machine voiced, um, the Anything outside of that, how did you, how did you kind of carve that up? And, and how did you, you know, assign tasks to the machine? Um, and did you, did you ever want to take things back? Did you want to just like, no, I'm, 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 I don't want to do that. You mean of stuff that's machine generated? Yeah. In the yeah. yeah, I mean, you just play. I mean, it's just, it's really happened in the editing process. Mm. I did it in the composition process, but then at a certain point in the editing process, you're just like, I feel like this moment needs a, bi a beat of eeriness or less eeriness and more obvious. You know, you're just kind of like, editing for me is, is really like this act of equal, equilibrium, seeking balance, finding the right balance, scene to scene to scene to scene, and, mm. and finding the, yeah, where you need a bit, where I wanted those interventions or not. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like, I'm thinking now of like, there's a, one would be tempted to say, oh, you use the machine as a labor-saving device in the draft. But no, <laughs> no you've already no. described pulling the slot yeah. machine. It would have been easier to just write, just like, you know, give it, yeah. give it a few minutes of your actual attention and you, you might have got to something you would have been good with. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, yes, it would have been easier. It would have been different. I mean, it's a bit like saying, I don't know, I find in the AI conversation, I encourage, I think it's interesting to imagine the way that some of this stuff will be a, to a tool available to writers 
not in a scary way, mm. just in the same way that, you know, like, do all, should all poets be writing concrete poetry or like acrostics? Should all, um, should all writers always write in the third person or should they never use stream of consciousness? So like, there's all these kind of like techniques. Mm. Should I use a really, should I use a thesaurus to get really wild adjectives or not? And the idea that one of the techniques or one of the approaches that can be used is to like invite another, or like just like you, I could write a novel with someone else. It's very rare to see a collaborative novel because it's because novelists hate like like are solitary creatures and don't like spending time with other people while they write. But there's something interesting if you can invite another. I'm not going to say mind, but another like writer writing system into your word processor that I think can. It doesn't necessarily make things easier, but it changes the work. And maybe sometimes it's a change or a color that, that is generative in that other way. Like generative is in adds more, adds something different that you are choosing to make rather than like diminishing the work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even if it's an irritant, it's, it's still, it's still provoking you in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. maybe it, maybe it just, it's dumb ideas help you change course. And I mean, we have to be careful about like not learning to write because mm. we're busy leaning on like probabilistic yeah. predictor, the autocomplete. You know, you want to learn to write your own emails and not just be like, sounds good, sounds good, <laughs> sounds good, until everyone's voice is the same. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, each of your books, in some way, I think, addresses technology. And I'm going to make the argument here. We all know that the theremin is a piece of technology. It's a musical instrument. Um, so us conductors check technology. We've been talking about technology, the new book, do you remember being born? Clearly a, a novel that grapples with technology. And I'm going to argue that the wagers being about gambling and probability deals with the technology of, of prediction, our best, our best ability as humans to, to tell what's coming next. Um, and so I wonder, after three novels, do you have a sense of yourself as a novelist and the kinds of stories and themes that you know you'll be able to, you know, what's, what's the suitable grist for your particular mill? No, 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 no. I, I, someone pointed out, someone made the same observation to me that, oh, th all three of your books are kind of science-y. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yeah, true. <laughs> but I kind of feel like technology, like we live in, li like we have to figure out life and art under capitalism. Mm. And ki kind of also one of the big challenges of today is like figuring out life under technology. I think there's something about that that feels very immediate and I'm fluent, like I've always been a pretty online person and so I'm fluent in it so why not use it but I, I don't know, I don't know if mm. I really, I don't actually know if it's like a life theme or just a coincidence. Right, well I mean you, you just alluded to it a little bit, the, the, this book uh, the plot of it really moves under the pressure of money and time. Yeah. Um, it's boxed into a week, um, Though well known, Marion is not exceptionally liquid, and and uh, and and her son Courtney seems to exist in a world we'd recognize as as uh, you know, uh, it, you can do just fine in life, and turns out you're poor. Too bad. So so she wants to give him something. Um, this tech company's proposal addresses both of those things, and and I guess I guess maybe what you're getting at is is that. As long as you're interested, the way I the way I'd phrase this question was: Is it possible to tell a story about technology without also addressing money, capitalism? Maybe I've actually got it backwards. That if you're interested in speaking about the forces of of capital, that you wind up drawn into talking about technology. Yeah, I think that's right. 
I think it's hard to honestly talk about, we have to be in a pretty privileged position to be talking about the, right, the artist's life without talking about money. And like, we tend not to, but like, I feel like I'm, I was writing a story about a poet. Poets sell, uh, like poets don't sell copies of their book. You know, like how many, you sell 200 copies of your book and you'll be happy, 500, incredible. I'm a novelist, I'm aware, I have poet friends, I'm aware of how writing novels is like a different, is a commercial pursuit, certainly the kinds of novels I write. And it's like, that's both great, but also feels sometimes like you're Marianne Moore saying like, oh sure, Ford, sounds good. Like, oh, people wanna buy my books. It's like, there's a bit of a Faustian bargain that's part of it. And, and I just, at a certain point when I was writing about making art and also writing about the, the threat or like the complication brought by AI technology, you, it's got to also be a conversation in some way about labor and about solidarity and about people finding the importance of people to each other, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And, uh, and so that's, once I kind of observed that, I realized it had to be this real undertone to the book. And so there's like several characters in the book and it's all that are connected through this idea of like, how much are we fellow, are we comrades? How much are we fellow laborers, you know, in this society? How much can we find solidarity? The poet and the garbage man and the chauffeur, you know? Mm -hmm. um, is it possible? Yeah, what does that look like? And is it fruitful? Yeah, is it fruitful? Mm. Oh, sorry, I want to say, because yeah. the thing that is crazy is like we tend to, I think a lot of artists think of like, to be an artist, you have to just ignore money. Think like, ignore money, try to get, a, like stop thinking about that also like ignore every, all the real stuff in your life, you know, close yourself up in this private room, you know, get an artist residency, find a refuge somewhere, uh, you know, send your kid off to boarding school. Like you have to have this kind of purity to access art when really the truth is like we live in this messy, crazy, messed up world. Can we not, is it not maybe true that one could have a richer art practice by being awake to all of it mm -hmm. and like letting those, forces blow through you and change, tilt your panel, like let them change your, what you write that tiny bit. Mm. We, uh, we can have questions. Does anyone have questions? Does anyone want to seize a microphone? Um, Amanda's got one just off the side there. Just raise your hand. Cause if you don't speak into the microphone, it doesn't count. It doesn't, it didn't happen. No. Okay. Well, we could instead, play a really stupid game because the intro is not the only thing I asked ChatGPT to write. I asked it to write some interview questions. Okay. Um, and I have not as yet asked you any. I hope that was, that's evident. If you'd like to uh, pick a number between one and 10. Nine. Nine, okay. Nine is current projects. Can you give us a sneak peek and do any ongoing or upcoming projects you're working on? Is there a new story or topic that has captured your imagination recently? No. <laughs> this would have been this whole thing would have been over a lot faster <laughs> if I outsourced the whole thing. AI might come for my job before it comes for yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be interviewing a robot soon enough. Let me ask then, as we talk about because you brought up labor, and one of the um, funniest, saddest, tragic comic uh, pieces are the are the are the employees of this company. 
that surround Marion, um, that, you know, bring her, bring her to and from the room and talk to her and tell her about like the marketing plan. And, you know, can we have something snappy by Tuesday? Um, uh, they they seem a tricky i mean they're they're funny to read but they also seem a tricky lot to write because i think like i think you're not trying to be cruel or dismissive i think you're actually trying to write a full human psychology in a very particular context um which is tricky because it's also psychology that by its nature um is trying to elude an individuality it's like really i think it's Right, like it's a little hard to say, like, okay, I'm going to make this character, and they're the they're the senior vice president of engineering, and they are not the same person as uh, as the 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 one that's involved with marketing. Although both of them are very much trying to subscribe to the same hive mind. How did you approach um, setting that cast of characters that would be around Marion um, as she undertook this this project? My first draft, first or second or third draft. I remember showing my agent the manuscript and she had a very, she had a great note, which was that this, there's a seat, the company, this, there's an unnamed mysterious, slightly mysterious tech company that's made this AI and they have a CEO called Astrid Torres Strange, who's this formidable 28 year old um, CEO. And there's a scene with Astrid and Meredith's note was like, can you make Astrid less villainous or less, less, uh, yeah, like less Lex Luthor. And I did. And the reason for this was that, that Meredith kind of articulated was, and that was very persuasive to me was, we've kind of lived through this cycle. I mean, literature has lived through the tech novel is now like of like the the internet tech novel is like 25 years old 25 30 years old and um, we've lived through the cycle of like introducing the idea of like internet tech bros and silicon valley startups and we've also even done the like mocking them you know the sat the silicon valley satire and all of that and now we're in a, an era where if you wrote a book about like how people who are addicted to their phones are like crazy nerds. Like it would be completely like it's it's all it's almost all of us, you know? It's like this we live we're no longer like separable in a way from technology. Like almost all of our jobs we use technology all day and it in some ways we work for technology companies. You know, if you work for a travel company, are you a travel company or are you like a website company? If you work for the Toronto Star, are you a newspaper person or do you work for the Toronto Star website? You know, like there's this way that we're all part of tech. And the idea of like mockingly and sneeringly from a distance saying, look at these like silly tech people who think they'll take over the world, whereas I have this, this, this like uh, perch to observe them from isn't, I don't think, authentic to the year 2023. So I want I think it's much more challenging for us to look at tech companies as something, and like the, the force of tech companies as something that we are complicit in, and that it's, it's me and my sister and my, you know, my friends who are the, the staff of these companies, and they're not just, like it's not, not everyone who works for a company is Peter Thiel, and in some ways, Peter Thiel being like a particularly horrible tech guy. And it, he's the easy target. Like the things that are wrong about technology and the planet Earth aren't due to just like 
Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, it's like the ways we are all complicit in systems that harm us and harm um, strangers. So I really thought that it was important and interesting to write a book that let those tech workers live in an ambivalent place. Because otherwise it's the sonnet. Like my book, like I work, I, my book comes out with a big giant publishing conglomerate, you know, that's, that's not based, you know, it's a giant industry too. And for me to like suddenly wag my finger at people who are part of these big systems that do bad things, it's like, I am as well. Yeah. There, there's a curious um, gravity in the book about, um, about Astrid because she's not, she's, she's very much an offstage character. Um, but she's like, you know, it's like, like how, uh, what is it? Like the moons of Neptune were intuited by, by their gravitational pull on the planet of like, we can't see them, but that planet's moving in a way that says there's something out there that's pulling it around. And, and the people are very much like you, once you say Astrid, the, the temperature of the room drops two degrees um, and everyone straightens up a little bit more and everyone's living for Astrid and they're internalized. Um, it occurs to me actually, there, there's like an, they've kind of, they've kind of got a, a, a generative AI called Astrid running in their minds at all times that they're kind of having a conversation with. Um, and it's just a question of like convincing everyone else that the generative Astrid you have is, is, is telling you better things to do than the generative, yeah. generative Astrid that the others have. Some of these are writer's tricks, you know, like mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that they're inauthentic or anything like that, but you start to have a toolkit of, of, uh, of ways to make, to, to write hopefully a good book. And something like, I'm going to introduce a character in chapter one or two, throw the ball in the air. It gives you a lot of, you've got quite a bit of time where the audience is going to keep reading, waiting for the ball to come down again. And so a lot of the process early in a book is kind of like throwing a bunch of balls in the air um, to make everyone keep reading until you get later. And so even just something, a character like that, it's like a book like this where I, I want to do a meditation on, you know, art, labor, the connections we have with one another, technology, whatever, the meaning of life. It's like that doesn't sound very compelling. So you've got to like use some of the architectural techniques that we have in literature to, to make that meditation move and give it kind of velocity. And so introducing a character that's very interesting and that everyone's interested in but we don't get to see mm. is like a, is kind of a, is a trick. Was there more of her in that earlier uh, villainous draft? There was at one moment more of her, but I don't think, at times I played with her having an earlier appearance. But also like a book, I also, I mean, whenever I write a book, I really want it to have its own weather. I want it to have like a, a feel, a vibe. Like I have an idea of the feel, the weather of it before I've written the book. And I kind of like write, trying to like express this vibe. And one of the vibes of this book was that it was very short. And it doesn't, like it's actually about the same number of pages as my previous books, but it's because it's got all these like chat transcripts with very few lines and lots of page breaks. But it, so in words, it's like 30 or 40% shorter. Mm. And so when you're writing a short book, you have to like, what can I take out? What can I, how can I make this simpler? How can I make this simpler? So characters start to recede. And if you're going to have a character with a name, you have to make sure like, you want very few characters with names and you want to, uh, um, yeah, remove what you can. So it's like, if you have extra Astrid, take her out. Mm. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the, like we, we're not supposed to talk about liking books cause they're short. Um, because we're supposed to like, I think that's capitalism again, telling us like more pages, 
you know. Right. Anyway. Um, but what actually one of the things I really appreciated about it was that um, it takes place in a week. Um, it is readable in a, I mean, if you've got a whole day off, you could probably make it. I'm not that kind of reader. I get restless. Um, but it's certainly a novel you could like if it's, it's a chapter per, per bedtime. Like you can, you can do the days with Mary. Maybe less. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I read, um, Greenwood by Michael Christie when that came out. I saw Michael and I was like, oh, your new book. It's real, like real page turner. Like nice one. And good work. And then, uh, Michael was like, Somebody told me how to do that. You just write really short chapters. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, man, short chapters. Just gives it a, I was like, hmm. And so I was like, well, let me try playing with this. And that's also like, this book has short chapters, not just to make it like page, but I was like, what does that feel, like how does that, let me play with that rhythm, shorter chapters. And in some cases there's chapters here, chapters. Though actually the Random House the Canadian formatting, there were so many chapters and yeah, maybe you don't, that's true. The Canadian edition of the book, um, like I have all these tiny chapters, sometimes a chapter with one sentence mm. and because of like printing costs here, they were like, we want to make them like uh, scene breaks and not always a full chapter break. It may have also been, because uh, I read, read it I read it as an ebook. Uh, all right. It, right? So, that, so I would have seen it. Yeah, I, you wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. I also had no heft in my hand either. Yes. I was just like, yeah. 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 Uh, capitalism. Capitalism. Incorporeality. But my American yeah. edition has more empty pages in it. Huh. I wonder how different. I have to do an A-B test to see. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a line in the book. Um, Maybe you don't have to be alive to sound alive. Uh, and it struck me as, as just a, a really wonderful statement just about the general statement about books, literature, these characters who do not exist, but they are alive to us. Um and I thought that was really lovely. And I think this um, this book is is lovely in in a, in a very peculiar way that I that um, that I, I was not prepared for. Uh, and I and I really loved it. So so thank you for writing it, and thank you for thank you for being here, Sean. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. That was me in conversation with Sean Michaels, author of the novel "Do You Remember Being Born." This live edition of Kobo in Conversation was hosted by me, Nathan Maharaj, and produced with help from the folks at Harborfront Center and, of course, the Toronto International Festival of Authors. If you enjoyed it and you're in the greater Toronto area in late September next year, check it out. The programming is very likely to be of interest to anybody who listens to this show and especially anybody who listens all the way through to the closing credits, like you. Thank you for listening.